1: Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real treat to speak with one of the uh, real legends in political science, uh, Professor David Mayhew, who is the Sterling Professor of Political Science Emeritus at Yale University, has written so many of the seminal books in the field, and is the recent author of The Imprint of Congress, published by Yale University Press in 2017. Professor Mayhew, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thanks. I'm, it's great to be here. Yeah,
1: it's, it's such a pleasure uh, to um, have read this, this new book, having read your previous books. Um, you have written some of the, the big works in the study of Congress. Um, this latest book um, comes out in your recent retirement. Uh, let me start by asking you, was this a book that had been simmering for a while, or, or was it the result of a reflection on your on your full body of study? So sort of place this uh, in, in your writing of the book. Oh,
0: yes, it had been simmering for a while there was an immediate provocation that as I went to a conference in 2013 and I was asked we all were asked to write a paper on Congress as a handler of challenges and uh, it's a history of Congress conference so is it would, is asked as an historical question and i decided to tackle it as an historical question there was some difference of the wording getting rid of the word challenges i so and yes so uh, this is a a history book It, it has it doesn't have anything about what's going on in the headlines right now in fact i finished it before the election and i It's innocent of whatever happened in the election. It's a history book. It's about the imprint of Congress across American history. And uh, let me say, why did I write it? Yes, I've been thinking about this. I think that the the question the book asks is, what has been the imprint of Congress on American um, society and life? And uh, you might say that's a a commonly asked question, but it's not. I mean, among political scientists, it's really not very often asked, maybe never asked in exactly those terms. I mean, the, the typical questions dealing with Congress are, well, does the public like what goes on? And the answer is ordinarily no. The polls are low. Or is Congress well? Is it democratic enough? Or is it representative enough? Or do presidents get what they want? I mean, for the media, that's a big question. Do presidents get what they want? I wanted to get beyond those questions and uh, try to look at the at the imprint imprint of um, of Congress on American um, history and American politics and life, going all the way back, going back 225 years. It's two and a quarter centuries now.
1: Now, now you set a sort of a backdrop for the book. These uh, dozen or so uh, ma- major endeavors in, in U.S. History history, from uh, continental expansion to responding to climate change how did you revise uh, arrive at these these impulses of Congress these are the, some of the big big national things um, uh, sort of explain the, how you got to these 13
0: well they are they are there is a selection uh, they, they are there I mean what are the reasons for doing it this way was it I wanted to I, in order to get to the imprint I wanted to put the us and in, in Congress what Congress does in in transnational and international or Perspective. I mean, generally speaking, the scholarly treatments of Congress I think are rather too insular, and 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 I, so, so I chose this, what I called impulses to look at over uh, since 1789, and they are, they're let's let's say they're impulses that, that have invested a a, a selection of, of peer countries at various times. It's not just the USA. It's rather it's something to make it onto my list of impulses, which to be sure is selective. I just did it was was to look abroad and see what, what what impulses, to put it that way, have have, have, have it, you know invested in England and France and so forth, a bunch of different countries at different times, like continental expansion in the early 90s, that's an American thing, it's also a Canadian, an Australian, New Zealand thing, a Russian thing, or launching a new country in the 1790s, that's a well, at, or in the, around that, a little after that, that's that's something that's going on in Latin America a little later, it's, um, or what else? I mean, um, consolidating national power in 1860s, or building a welfare state, or or competing with other countries for world world power and even world supremacy, or um, responding to the Great Depression, or after World War II, or trying to build decently productive economies after World War II. Those are those are impulses that you see all over the place, or at least in peer countries. So I, I wanted to see. I, I use that as a selection selection device to decide what to look at in the case of the U.S. and especially the U.S. Congress.
1: And, and what does this say about the the distinctiveness of how Congress has addressed these what what in in that way are kind of global challenges Um, does this make the case for American congressional exceptionalism or or have common strategies uh, been found
0: I think, generally speaking, if you look at the, at, 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 at the product, so to speak, the, the activity of the whole American state and compare it with other states, the British, the French, and so forth, there's an awful lot of commonality. Now, partly that's the way I'm, I selected things to look at, but it really, I think that they, I, this is not a book uh, pointing out either American or congressional exceptionalism. I think, generally speaking, the the U.S. Um, does things in its governing system pretty much the way peer countries do things, it's, uh, do, and the U.S. does things just as well, generally. Speaking, but but there we are. But there are some. But there are some. There are some. There are some wrinkles. And the U.S. might be behaving differently without Congress being you know, the cause of it, or partly the cause of it. But sometimes, probably, the Congress is in there. I I think that here, here are some instances where Congress or the I think are or, or some arguments where Congress or the coexistence of Congress and the executive branch probably do impart some distinctively to American distinctiveness to American politics. I think that I think that. The development of the of the welfare state, the U.S. compared with development in other countries, in Britain and uh, Germany, and for Sweden, and other places, is, is at least partly affected by the nature of the American separation of power system. This this has been written about. This question's been written about, right nicely, lately, by political scientists, by Stephen Scott by by Sarah Pole, by by Monica Prasad, who's a sociologist. Very good scholarship out there. And the the, the reluctance of, of, of Congress in the late 19th century, early 20th century to agree to establish a strong um, bureaucracy in D.C. that could administer and develop things like a very complicated national pension scheme probably has helped to make the American um, welfare state somewhat leaner and, um, and somewhat later than you'll find in some of these other countries. Not that it's worse, but it's is leaner and later probably than some other countries. I think there's that, 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 an instance. Another, another possibility is this one, and it's the, the, the Americans' um, century Ago, a little more than a century ago, in reaction to the coming of big, big corporation capitalism, corporate capitalism late nineteenth century, which is very very disruptive to societies across the then developing world in fact, the whole world in the late nineteenth century early 20th century well. The U.S., um, what the U.S. did, uh, distinctively, this is distinctive is to invest in regulating, very heavily regulating industries, rather than to try to operate them through government um, units. That is not um, government ownership and operation, as very, very small thing in the U.S., a rare thing in the U.S., but... Very heavy regulation is um, is there, and I think partly this is a congressional thing. This Congress is, is pretty industrious at writing um, regulations, sometimes very thick statutes. But but to get Congress anyway near actually operating things like the railroads, well, that's a bit dicey. I mean, the, the way Congress operates, is kind of messy. It's got... 's got you know, there can be incessant legislating amendments here amendments there all this is very responsive to the public but it's not some, it's not very very good for 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 uh, for the development of units we wouldn't think of having congress run the federal government run Microsoft for example it probably wouldn't work very well so I think maybe the 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 exceptional privateness of privateness of american um, the American political economy that is the overwhelming devotion to private ownership that may be part, partly a response. To the fact that Congress kind of meddles messily into units even though it's extremely good at regulation
1: now you write about our, our current fascination with polarization where do you stand on the polarization debate um, placing polarization into this historical look that you, you give in the book so so where do you stand where have I been
0: yeah well let me see we, we've got a lot of polarization these days it's a big fee no question about it It's out there but to, to put it in a historical perspective, what do we see i I'm, I, I don't like to use um, the uh, standard data sets to compare across history on this one the uh, congressional roll calls i just don't I don't think they go to the they go to the hundred yard line and try to and try to make comparisons about polarization they tend to they tend to for one thing and they uh, tend not to not to Tell very well about differences of intensity as opposed to differences in position. But if you look back in American history, I think uh, obviously number one for polarization is the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, the country is falling apart. It was like it was the you know the, the Cyprus or the Northern Ireland of its time in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. What with the Civil War coming down, it was that. Apex for polarization, and actually in the 19th century, building up to it with the crises of 1820 and 1850, we could see very, very, very serious polarization over slavery, North versus South, that was there. And and otherwise, I mean, there are there are there incidences of polarization which don't sort into party versus party in a statistical sense that goes on for quite a while. For example, with the war, I mean the Vietnam War, 1967 or 1960. 1975 is a is a is a period of very very serious polarization in American politics and society. No question about it. People are in the streets. The war was going on. That was not a Democrats versus Republicans polarization. But I wouldn't think that the the fact that it wasn't will immunize it against thinking of, about it as a time of polarization. There's the McCarthy era, 1950 to 54. That was a time of a considerable polarization in that spec. And and the coming industrialization in the early 20th century. I mean. Who knows it's very difficult to measure, but uh, all pol- politics is not as sweet and low during those during those decades of heavy industrialization. So it's there, yes, and we—it's uh, there—and and, and the, through various quite credible statistical indicators and through feeling, we've been getting a an, an ascendance of, um, of polarization during the last 30 years or
1: so. No question about it. Now, as you note, noted at the start of our conversation, this book uh, was both uh, written before uh, the current election, and, and so it doesn't speak directly to it. But you—you you have uh, recently uh, uh, offered some comments. You offered some comments in the monkey. Page blog on, on how to evaluate the opening period of the Trump presidency, and part of this evaluation is by looking back and, and making comparisons. Um, so I wonder if you just uh, uh, maybe end our conversation a little bit by by talking uh, about that and and uh, this this hundred or 120 day legislative record so far. Is it what you expected? Are there any reasons uh, to think that this is uh, different from what we would have expected from a, a Trump administration and its legislative uh, imprint so far
0: i would say it's not different forget about the content for a moment just look about the the progression of activity the uh, the the media tend to use, tend to use a 100 uh, 100 days yardstick to um, measure what happens in in the well the first uh, the beginning of a presidency where a new sort of president has just been freshly elected and uh, at least the legislative leave aside executive orders presidents can do things they can travel to arabia they can issue executive orders. Boy, no question about it. It's very important. But for uh, legislating, as making new laws, the, the idea of a 100-day standard is just a terrible standard. It's a fake yardstick. That I mean, sit, and it, We look back to or Roosevelt in 1933. There was an immense crisis that backed up um, Roosevelt's 100 days in 1933, and no question about it. It was the maybe the biggest binge of lawmaking in American history in FDR's 100 days. But since then, if you look through all the freshly elected presidents. So I, I can find only one instance of an important law passed during a 100 days period, and that was uh, Obama's um, um, uh, stimulus bill in February of 2009. But notice that was another crisis uh, piece of legislation. That is, the economy was collapsing or in terrible shape right then in the winter of 2008 to 2008, 2009. So it's not surprising they could get their act together in a hurry. But otherwise, I mean, all the presidents since uh, since Roosevelt, there's virtually nothing that goes on of legislative importance in the first 100 days, put it that that way. Another point, a second point I can make more briefly is that the Republicans on Capitol Hill are, uh, you know, they're kind—they're of, divided. They're sort of the, they get the Tea Party folks; it's difficult to herd them together, it's like herding cats. You get the New Jersey cats as well as the uh, Tea Party cats and so forth. The Senate Republicans against the House Republicans, and he's like, "Oh well." The, uh, but but uh, the, 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 the historical point on this one is that congressional parties going back a long time, and just just keep it to congressional majority parties. Are usually very seriously divided on uh, on major issues it's uh, it's just not a new thing that is I mean and it 's not just one party it's both parties I mean and it, 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 ask uh, Henry Truman and Sam Rayburn and Jack Kennedy about the Democrats and Dixiecrats on Capitol Hill and what kind of troubles they were giving
1: That was David Mayhew talking about his new book The Imprint of Congress, uh, published this year by Yale University Press uh, in two thousand and seventeen. Thank you for listening to the podcast.